Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Have you ever found yourself eating even though you know that you aren't actually hungry? For some reason, the food just keeps calling out to you and you keep going after it, even though it doesn't satisfy you and you know you don't need it? Well, if so, this episode is definitely for you. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And today I have Dr. Glenn Livingston on the show to teach us all about what binge eating does to us and the psychology around it and how to break free of it. So Glenn was disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, and so he spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his patients in a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. But more importantly, he actually went through his own journey of binge eating and food obsessions, and that journey led him to discover a way to reach a healthy weight feel like he broke free of that food prison and had a much better relationship with food. But before we dive into this episode, if you haven't checked out my store over at mountainsideherbals.com, we just added some new products over there. We added elderberry-infused raw honey, and that raw honey comes directly from my own honeybees. And I've also added different flavors to our very popular Windbreaker lip balm line. So now we have peppermint as an option as well, and also we have that in a chapstick version. So if you want to get any of those products, then head on over to mountainsideherbals.com. All right, let's dive into my conversation with Glenn. Thank you, Dr. Glenn Livingston, for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Please call me Glenn. Of course, Glenn. I'm very excited to chat with you because we're going to be talking about um, food addiction and just that that desire to always want to be consuming food and how it can be really difficult to break free of that, especially if you are trying to get healthier and you're just being succumbed by that. But before we dive into that, let's learn a little bit more about you, what your background is, and what is your profession? My profession is clinical psychology. Um, my background is as a child and family psychologist. I actually didn't work with food addiction because I, I had one, had a very bad binge eating problem. Um, and if you had ever visited a deli or a pizza place on Long Island and you found they were out of pizza, it was probably because of me. Um, I'm only half kidding, but I, I, I I'm six four, and I'm just like genetically modestly muscular. And so I discovered when I was about 17 that if I worked out for a couple of hours a day, that I could eat whatever I wanted to. You know, whole pizzas or more than one, um, boxes of Pop-Tarts, multiple boxes of, you know, munchkins and donuts and uh, multiple chocolate bars. And anything that wasn't nailed down was fair game when I was young. And I didn't think that was a problem. I actually thought it was a really cool thing. Uh, kind of like a superpower, as Doug Graham says. I um, would just eat a lot and poop a lot and sleep a lot, and I was thin and handsome and enjoying life as a teenager. And then when I got married, and I was 22 or so, and I was getting a little older, and I went to graduate school two hours away, so I was commuting two hours away to see to see patients and work in classes and 
um, and I'd come home and have to work on the business. I, I didn't have like two minutes a week to exercise, much less two hours a day. And I found that the food still had a hold on me. I just kept, you know, I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and thinking, when can I get my next pizza? Um, or a couple that just discovered an affair and um, like very high risk situations. And I, I joke around a little about this whole background because it seems like so long ago now, but, but um, the truth is it was very painful to me because more so than the weight, I, I was probably almost 300 pounds, 280, 300. I stopped weighing myself. Um, my triglycerides were awful. The doctors were yelling at me, telling me I'm going to die by the time I'm 30. But, but besides that, it was the food obsession that was driving me crazy. I, I would be sitting with patients and I, I really, being a great psychologist was the most important thing to me. I come from a family of 17 psychotherapists and yeah, if, if you... That's a lot. Something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it, how it feels, but no one knows how to fix it. Um, but, but all kidding aside, it was a very soulful existence, and it's all I ever wanted to do. I wanted to be a really great psychologist. Um, but I wasn't, because I wasn't fully present with these people. And psychology is not really an intellectual endeavor. You have to know a lot of things, but more so you have to lend people your soul so that they love and trust you enough to think new thoughts and take chances in their life and, and readjust their, their sales. Um, so I tried to love myself then for years. Being from the family I was from, I figured there must be a hole in my heart and if, if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. And so I went to the best psychologists and I did all the soul searching and I went to Overeaters Anonymous and tried to have a spiritual awakening and I um, saw a psychiatrist that took medication. Um, I even, because I, I had, my ex-wife was traveling for business at the time and I had a lot of time in my hands. I didn't have kids. I worked at home. So I had a second career as a consultant, largely to the food industry, um, also to big pharma and things like that. Um, and, and so I knew how to do these big studies. That's what I was doing for them. And I conducted my own study with 40,000 people to figure out what types of stress seemed to lead to what types of food addiction. Um, I discovered that people who started with chocolate if they felt like they couldn't stop eating chocolate they were usually lonely or brokenhearted or a little bit depressed and that was my thing i my, i was always going to chocolate and i you know it wasn't in a great marriage or anything um called my mom and i said what could this possibly mean she she i said you know you know i am stressed and a little lonely and i'm not happy about the way things are going but why do i go to chocolate as soon as i feel like that and she gets this horrible look on her face and she says, you know what, Glenn, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, you know, it's okay. You were a kid. She was a very young mother. I said, you were a kid. This is 40 years ago. I just, I just want to know what happened. She said, I'm so sorry, but when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified that I was going to be this young widow with, you know, one small kid and another one on the way. At the same time, my father, your grandfather, just got out of prison, and I had idolized him my whole life. I didn't know he was doing these things, and he was. He was guilty. And so basically, when you would come running to me for food or for love, I was horrifically depressed and anxious, and I'd be sitting and staring at the wall. 
So I, I would say, Glenn, honey, I, I kept a bottle of um, chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the refrigerator and you'd open the refrigerator and you'd suck on the bottle and go into a chocolate sugar coma. And then I could continue staring at the wall. And I thought, wow, this has got to be it. This is the problem. But I didn't get better. I actually got worse. And I realized that the paradigm I might be working with was wrong. Because what happened was, it's like there was this little voice in my head and the little voice says, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Her mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can get out of this marriage and find the love of your life, you're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. It was this voice of justification. So I started to say, hmm, maybe loving myself then isn't the right approach. Maybe there's something more about this voice of justification, more so than figuring out how to fill the hole in my heart. At the same time, I was consulting for industry because I had all this extra time in my hands. And I saw what the big food companies were doing. And they're, they're spending millions, if not billions of dollars to engineer these hyper palatable food-like substances that are you know, concentrations of sugar and salt and fat and excitotoxins. And um, it, it's, all, it's all designed, it's all engineered to hit the bliss point of the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And when you do that, you create this desire for more. It actually kind of hijacks your survival drive and it, it makes you think that you can't live without this stuff. At the same time, the advertising industry, which I was also working with, I was an advertising consultant, um, I was kind of on the wrong side of the war. Like in my, I'm in my 50s now, and when I was in my 30s, I was on the wrong side of the war. Um, and I feel contrite about it, but I'm trying to make up for it. Um, but but they people think that advertising doesn't affect them, but it actually affects you more when you think that, because your sales resistance is down. They, they know what they're doing. They really know what they're doing. And they're expert at fooling you into thinking that this is where the good stuff is. So for example, I remember I became very friendly with um, a vice president of a major food bar manufacturer. And as he was leaving the company, he kind of hung his head in shame and said, I have to tell you something. The most profitable thing we ever did was take the vitamins out of the bar because they were making it taste bad and we could then put the money into the packaging instead. So they made it look vibrant and multicolored, but the vitamins weren't really in there. A, a, a vibrant diversity of colors in nature would represent a diversity of micronutrients that are available. So our evolutionary brains have evolved to think that this is where the good stuff is, right? That's why you say eat the rainbow. You know, if you have a salad with green lettuce and blueberries and yellow carrots and red tomatoes, it, you're getting a diversity of micronutrients. They were they were very facile at fooling our brains into thinking that these things were nutritious when they really weren't. And I don't mean to single them out. This goes on all across the food industry. There's just, I mean, we could go on and on and on about the kind of things that they do. But the bottom line was, these were two very powerful forces that had nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough or left the chocolate-sized hole in my heart, right? These were um, forces of industry that worked with the reptilian brain. And then the, the, the final straw was, the straw that broke the camel's back, was when I realized that the reptilian brain, which seems to be the source of the thing that gets involved with food addiction, 
with all addiction, but food addiction in particular. Um, it's, it's the seat of the survival response, which so it makes sense. The reptilian brain doesn't know love. The reptilian brain is more or less engaged in a bad college drinking game. It looks at things in the environment and it says, do I eat that thing? Do I mate with that thing? Or do I kill that thing? Eat, mate, or kill. That's what the survival instinct is about. There's no love. Love is more of a function of the um, mammalian brain and the neocortex, which say before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on your tribe? What impact will that have on the people that you love? What impact will that have on the kind of person you were trying to be on your long-term goals and dreams, including weight loss and fitness and things like that? So saying, wait a minute, I spent, you know, 25, 30 years trying to love myself then, but this thing doesn't know anything about love. So at that point, I did something kind of crazy. And now remember, this was just for me. I wasn't trying to be a psychologist to help everyone. I did write a really bad book about 10 years before, Never Binge Again, um, which I'm not even going to tell the name of because I don't want people looking it up. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, um, but I really wasn't trying to, to be a psychologist. I was trying to figure this out for myself. So I decided that I needed to know when the reptilian brain was active and I was going to have to take more of an alpha wolf approach than a love yourself thin approach. And if you think about it, when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership by another member of the pack, it doesn't go, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. I better love you more. It, it snarls and it growls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. Grr, right? So I decided I needed to take a superior approach, kind of like you take with your bladder or, or your testicles. Like if, if there's an attractive woman on the street, you don't, you don't just go run out in the street and kiss her, right? I, I hope you don't. Um, and I certainly don't because I'm kind of shy. But, or, or if you really have to pee in the middle of a business meeting, you don't just drop trow and go. You say, um, you tell your bladder, look, I'm in charge, or, or your testicles, I'm in charge, and there are civil, civilized ways to go about these things. And in the case of the business meeting, you kind of either finish the meeting and then politely excuse yourself and go, or if you really have to go, you politely excuse yourself. In the case of the woman, you, you know, approach in your own time in your own way. And um, I said, why can't this be any different? If what's happening is that there are these, you know, fat cats in white suits with mustaches that are laughing all the way to the bank every time I look for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. And what they're doing is they're stimulating this, this thing inside of me. Well, why can't I just take control of the thing the same way that I do when I feel stimulated to pee or to go and, you know, go with an attractive woman? Why can't I take control in the same way? And the truth is you can. You just have to know when it's waking up and you have to be able to jump out of that reptilian brain response, that feast or famine response. You got to jump back up into your rational mind. So... Uh, with a lot of credit for some other people who did this with other addictions, like Jack Trimpey for Rational Recovery, I decided I'm going to think of my brain in two parts. There's me, and then there's this uh, reptilian brain, which I called very insensitively my inner pig, because this was not going to be public. So I said, this is my inner pig. And I, I said, I'm going to have to have a very clear line in the sand so I know when I'm acting healthy and when I'm not. So I said, okay. I will only ever have chocolate on Saturdays and Sundays. I won't have chocolate during the week. That way, if I'm in a Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar at the counter that's calling my name as I'm approaching to pay for my latte, and I hear this little voice inside that says, you know what, Glenn? 
You worked out hard enough. You're not going to get any wit. It's just as easy to start tomorrow. And, you know, besides chocolate grows from a cocoa bean, and that's really a vegetable. If I, if I hear that little voice, I said, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner pig, and my pig is squealing for slop. Chocolate is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. On a Wednesday, chocolate is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. This inner ridiculous thing, and I, I'm, I'm a sophisticated psychologist. You heard my credentials, and I'm all over the place, and you know, I've got a PhD, but, but none of that stuff worked for me. This ridiculous primitive um, technique would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me a few extra microseconds to make the right choice if I wanted to. Now, I wish I could tell you that it was a miracle and I immediately got thin and I didn't make a mistake after that. That's, that's not how the story goes. What did happen was it cleared away all the confusion. Now it was just me versus my pig. The pig was saying crazy stuff. And as I learned to disempower that crazy stuff, when I learned what was wrong with the crazy things it was saying, I began to feel like I had more and more power to make the right choice. So for example, if the pig says, it'll just be just as easy to start your diet tomorrow, the truth is that that's not true. The, print, the way the brain works, the principle of neuroplasticity says, if you have a craving and you indulge it today, that craving will be stronger tomorrow. If you're in a hole, stop digging, always use the present moment to be healthy. It's the only time you can feed yourself, right? So I would, um, I, I, I would, I would keep a journal of all of the crazy things my pig said and what was logically wrong with what it was saying. Over the course of many years, um, over the course of about a year, I really started to get it. But it, over the course of many years, I came down to a thin weight. I really kind of perfected it. I learned that there was a lot more to getting out of that reptilian brain. It's like once I woke up, then I realized there were things that I could do to activate the other part of my nervous system, the part that says it's okay to rest and digest and problem solve and think, as opposed to act on emergencies. Um, I, I discovered that there were... Uh, ways to program in these counter thoughts on a regular basis so that they would automatically pop up if the pigs tried to say something crazy. But, but essentially, I, I just drew a line in the sand. I would listen for the pig to try to get me to cross it. I accepted that it was going to try. And I said, have at it, pig. H have at it. I'm stronger than you. Um, and I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Slowly but surely, I got better. So that's... um. When I was getting divorced in 2016, I, um, I, I decided that I was going to close my other businesses and I was going to write a book. Um, I was a minor partner of a publishing company already, and I gave it to the CEO who says, oh my God, this is fantastic. I don't eat donuts. Donuts are pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And then he proceeds to lose a whole bunch of weight. He lost almost 100 pounds now. Wow. Um, and we were good at, you know, we we're both in marketing. We were good at knowing how to contact the right people and get it started. And it took off by itself. And um, now we've got more reviews than the Da Vinci Code. It's got over 13,000 reviews. And um, people don't quite know my name, but they recognize me. And sometimes if I'm in a bookstore, if I'm in a bookstore, they, they walk up to me and they go, pig guy, pig guy. So that's, <laughs> that's my claim to fame now. That's my awesome. story. Yeah. Um, so lots of questions there. So first one, when you were drawing the line in the sand, how did you know where to draw that line? And does it matter 
or do you just need to find a spot to start from? Um, the answer is really both. It, it does matter in many ways, um, but it's better to start with something than nothing. So the, the way that it matters is that most people who struggle with overeating are also very good dieters. So what those things both have in common, overeating and dieting, is they're part and parcel of a feast and famine environment. And if you tell your brain that you live in an environment where calories and nutrition may be scarce, which is what happens when you're doing quote unquote good dieting and you're losing weight quickly and you're, then you're also telling your brain that when you find the harvest, when calories and nutrition are available, when you, God forbid, break your diet on a Monday or something like that, that you better hoard it. And there's, then there's this response that people have where they feel like someone's holding a gun to their head and telling them to eat as much as they can. And so you want to choose a rule that's going to get you off of the feast and famine, out of the feast and famine cycle. Um, we'd like to start people with one simple rule. So, and, and it's something that's, it's not too burdensome. It doesn't restrict your calories and nutrition too much. Like you won't lose more than a pound a week doing it. Um, and it's something that you could and would do that would prove to you that you're going in the right direction without, um, without being too hard to implement. So examples might be, I knew this guy, a trucker, and he had to eat at fast food restaurants all day long, three times a day. He says, I'm not going to stop doing that, but I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. That's an example of one simple rule. Other people will make one simple rule that support mindfulness, like, um, oh, I'll always put my fork down between bites or I'll never eat in front of a screen again. Um, other people will make conditional rules. So it'll say, I'll only have chocolate on Saturday or Sundays, or I'll only ever eat pretzels at Major League Baseball games. Um, but what all the rules have in common is that they're tolerable. They're very clear. There's no ambiguity whatsoever. You know you know, if you're having a pretzel outside of a Major League Baseball game, you know if you're having chocolate on a Wednesday and you said you wouldn't do that. There's no ambiguity whatsoever. Um, so it's, it's not something like, um, well, I eat when I'm hungry and I'm st I stop when I'm full because there's a lot of ambiguity with that. And the pig can say, oh, I think you're hungry, baby. I believe me, I think you're hungry. Or you're not really full yet, are you? Right? The, the line is ambiguous. So we say there should be a um, 10 observer acid test. If you take your rule and you say, if 10 observers followed me around all month, would they all agree or not whether I broke the rule? If they couldn't agree, then you don't have a never binge again enforceable rule. You have just kind of a guideline. So one simple rule, not too restrictive. The, the goal is to take your spirit back from the pig. Show yourself that this is not hopeless. You are not powerless. You don't have to keep eating out of control. There's no alien entity that's really taking over your hands and your arms and your legs and your mouth and your tongue. You can do this thing. Um, you are the master, not the slave. That's, that's what you want to do. So um, do you worry about people drawing that line in the sand? Like we'll take the chocolate only on weekends um, example and they won't have chocolate all week. They get to the weekend and then they just consume chocolate like crazy. Or is it once you draw that line in the sand, do, does your desire for that food start to dwindle? So by the time the weekend does come around, it might take a few weeks, but you're not going to eat or consume as much of that food because question. you're not wanting it as much? It's a good question. Um, usually when people draw 
conditional rules, where they're going to moderate a treat rather than give it up. Usually they draw boundaries with that with those rules also. If you think of it like an archery target, so the bullseye during the week is I don't eat chocolate, but then there's that second rung around the the, the archery target that says, well, on the weekends I can, but maybe I won't have more than three ounces a day or something like that. So there's there's a specific boundary. And it's very important to aim at clear goals because when you're aiming at an archery target with a very clear bullseye and very clear rungs around it, you know when you miss the target by how much and in what direction. And you can use that feedback to readjust your aim the next time. If you're just kind of sort of aiming in a direction you think is good, you're going to lose out on that feedback and you can't learn from your mistakes. Okay. That makes sense. I like it. Yeah. yeah um, so it's 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 better to put a boundary on the um, on the indulgent days. It's usually better. Yeah. Don't just but, let it be free flowing. Well, the the other thing to understand is that food addiction is the um, is the indulgence of whim and emotion over intellect around dangerous food areas. And, and so what the boundary does is make intellectual decisions about how much you should have at what time uh, so that you're not as vulnerable to the spontaneous whims of your pig. That's, mm. that's, what, that's what the boundary does. And a lot of people who previously couldn't, um, couldn't control a substance like chocolate find that they might be able to, and it, it's at their own risk because, you know, I don't know who those people are going to be. But um, if they were just trying to like eat well 90% of the time and indulge themselves 10% of the time, but they didn't know which was the 90% and which was the 10%, it wasn't specified, they couldn't do that because they constantly had to make decisions about is this part of the 90% or is this part of the 10%. And willpower is the ability to make good decisions. And it seems to be a finite quantity, kind of like gas in the tank that we get every day. And if you impinge on the brain to make constant decisions all day long, you're less likely to make good decisions as those decisions progress throughout the day. If you can eliminate those decisions by saying, I'll only ever have two ounces of dark chocolate on a Saturday, then your chocolate decisions have been made and you don't, you don't have to use your willpower constantly. Just become the kind of person who has two ounces of chocolate on a Saturday. Does having the the knowing and the education around how the food industry is creating their foods to um, sell more product to you, to get you to buy more of their product. And that also impacts kind of that desire for that food. Does the knowledge alone help at all with making changes? Or is that just kind of a, something that's in your brain that doesn't really make or break anything for you to actually make changes? Well, it makes you angry as opposed to ashamed, right? Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Kind and of, maybe. Sh- shame is like a psychological cancer for people that struggle with food. It it wears you down and makes you feel like you're too weak to resist the next binge. Um, and when you can stop blaming yourself and say, this is not fair. They have billions of dollars and all these rocket scientists figuring out how to override my best judgment to break my hungry and full meters. Life shouldn't be like this. Um, remember the movie Network a long time ago in the 70s? This newscaster got fed up and he said, I want you to go to your window. I want you to open the window. I want you to say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. 
right? It, it kind of engenders that kind of an attitude. And I don't want people to, I don't want people to riot or anything like that, but, but um, the anger is mobilizing and the shame is um, incapacitating. So it, it does help like that. At the same time, what you say is true that um, knowledge by itself is useless. So you have to use the knowledge and take action to, um, to make these changes. Perfect. Now, what about for people that they know they have a problem, but they're not fully ready to make a commitment to make changes? And let's say you're a family member that you're seeing this uh, behavior happening and you would love to see that person become healthier and start making changes. Is there much that you can do as an outside person or does it have to be come from the person that this is actually impacting? Well, the, the best thing you can do is what Gandhi said, which is to be the change that you want to see in the world. So be a shining example. Um, show your kids that mom can or dad um, can have a banana smoothie with spinach and a couple of dates and carob as opposed to a milkshake from Burger King or something like that, you know? Um, uh, um, you know, let them see you transform. Let let them see you glow with your energy, and um, and then you can look, especially with kids, you can look for aspirational models. Like a lot of kids watch these ninja sport shows on TV, and sometimes you can find athletes who have a YouTube channel and they're talking about what they eat and everything like that. That's much more effective. Say, oh, you know, look what you know Johnny Gogo eats for breakfast every morning. Do you want to do that? Versus saying, you know, it would be really good for you to have X, Y, and Z. And they go, no, 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 I want my Cocoa Puffs. So, so that can be helpful to be a, a shiny example and to look for aspirational models. Um, so, so the question is, how can you change other people? You, you really can't. Yeah. <laughs> you really can't. And spouses take longer to come along than kids. Kids usually start to make changes about six months after their parents do. But spouses hold on for a couple of years, usually. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it seems like a lot of uh, uh, spouse or couples that I know, um, the nagging, if one person's you know nagging the other about making changes, that never seems to work. But if they start actively making a change for their own selves and then the other spouse sees that happening, then eventually they kind of follow suit. Yeah. It seems to be more effective. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's actually... Um... For the first four to six months that you're overcoming your own food struggles, it's actually better not to argue too much about what's healthy and unhealthy and tell, tell people they really ought to do this. And what you especially don't want to do is go up to other people and, you know, and say, you know, I think you got a pig inside of you. You got a pig inside of you too. <laughs> people don't like that very much. So it's, um, you can give them a copy of the book, uh, which is, um, I'll tell you how to get it for free later on. And uh, have them read the first couple of chapters and see if they like it. But but um, you you don't you don't want to. Um, people will find it insulting if you tell them that there's a pig inside of them. They will um, think that you're calling them a pig. And this whole system works just as well if you call it a food monster or a demon or you know any anything Something else that that's not a cute pet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't have to use the word pig. Yep. Well, I'm assuming there's more to the process than just drawing that line in the sand. Um, so are there more steps that are beneficial for people to be able to break free of the food addictions and binging and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have two nervous systems, essentially. A neurologist might take me to task, but they're essentially two nervous systems. 
There's one that gets us revved up and ready for action, usually emergency action. And there's one that gets us calmed down and ready to rest and digest and think, et cetera, et cetera. The parasympathetic system is the one that calms us down. Um, this is what's activated by yoga at the end when people are in Shavasana and you know, feeling all chilled out and blissed. Um, this, this is something you can activate with a particular type of breathing. When you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, you're telling the brain that there's no emergency. And if you think about it, if you were, we call these 7-11 breaths, so breathe in for a count of 7, out for a count of 11. And if you were being chased by a hungry bear, then you wouldn't have time to do that. You'd be like, <laughs> getting all the air that you possibly could. So if you breathe in for a count of 7 and out for a count of 11, you're going to calm down. So the moment you see that the pig is telling you the pig is squealing and saying, go eat this slop, that's the first thing you want to do is take a few 7-11 breaths. Then if you write down exactly what the pig is saying, writing is a function of the neocortex, right? Writing is an upper brain function. Binging is a lower brain function. So that also takes you out of the lower brain into a more resting, digestive, analytical mode. You're moving the battleground to the place where logic reigns supreme, where the pig wants you to live in a place where impulses reign supreme, but you're inserting a space between stimulus and response, activating the parasympathetic nervous system and calming things down. So if you do that, and then you, then you write out all the squeals, and then you write out why the pig is wrong. Um, and, and then once you've done that, you should feel demonstrably calmer and the craving should have subsided somewhat. But there might be a confusion with an authentic bodily need. A lot of times people get cravings for something they shouldn't be having when there really is something they should be having. And so the pig will have framed it as either you have the chocolate bar or starve, but really you cannot have the chocolate bar and not starve. You can eat something else. So for, for example, I discovered that usually when I was craving chocolate, which was usually about two or three in the afternoon, that I, I needed a dose of energy of some sort, and I experimented with different natural foods that would give me that, and I eventually arrived at a banana kale smoothie. If I could work it out to have a banana kale smoothie when I had the chocolate craving, I didn't have to indulge the craving even if I couldn't do this, but it would be a lot more comfortable if I could have a banana kale smoothie. And then eventually, I trained my survival drive to look for energy in the banana kale smoothie instead of in the chocolate bar. So. The, the takeaway is you, it, you need to flood your body with nutrition on a consistent basis at a slight caloric deficit if you want to lose weight. Um, if, if, you're, if you're losing more than a pound or two per week, you're probably going too quickly and it's, there's a pretty good chance it's going to rebound the other way sooner or later. Um, so flood your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit. Learn how to activate your parasympathetic nervous system so you can calm down and get out of emergency mode. And then learn how to disempower the pig logically by taking apart the things that it says. Wait, did you basically just say that trying to lose 20 pounds in six days diets aren't effective in the long term? It's We haven't had success with that. No, we don't. <laughs> Weird, weird. I see magazines with that on at the stores all the time. Huh. I know. Interesting. I know. It's scary. It's scary. I know. No, I, 
yeah, it's what people it's, want. Uh, people want to do that, so it's not sexy for me to say that. Yeah. But, um, well, it kind of goes back to the marketing stuff you were talking about earlier, where um, marketing does a fantastic job of knowing what people want, and they can sell you on that and kind of trick you into that. And it's it's a scary part of the food industry in general is they know way more about your own psychology than you do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the fastest way to lose weight is slowly. Yep. Yeah, and then it doesn't feel like a chore. It seems what, like what, for a lot of people, if it feels like a chore, they're trying to lose weight, then um, they fall off the bandwagon. What what we find with the people that lose weight and keep it off, and we, you know, we've worked with, I want to say we have got a team of um, nine coaches and got a business partner and a couple of people in the company. What, what we find with the people that lose weight and keep it off, you know, for, for the long run, is that they actually kind of let go of weight loss as a goal. It's paradoxical. And what they focus on instead is the desire to be off of a diet. They realize that by trying to diet hard and then bouncing back for all these years, they've kept themselves on a diet for most of their life and they hate it because being on a diet sucks, it's miserable. So they want to get off of the diet and more importantly, they want to free themselves from the mental obsession with food. When am I going to have it? How am I going to indulge? How much can I have? How am I going to stop myself? How am I going to make up for the difference? Exactly what am I going to have? Where am I going to get it? How do I hide the evidence? They, they, that, that constant thinking about food that takes over their thoughts, they realize that that was torturous and they have the goal of eliminating the food obsession and eliminating the dieting and just getting on an even keel with food and then the weight seems to take care of itself. Assuming they're being reasonable about what their their food plan is. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's what I've seen um, really successful people are too is the uh, the weight loss doesn't become the main goal. It becomes a benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, Glenn, is there any final things you want to make sure that we touch on when it comes to binge eating and how to control it before we wrap up here? There are two quotes that are important to me, and then I like to tell people where they can get more information if they want to. Um, Jim Rohn said, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. That's the first quote. I think that's very true. I think most people think that there's this dichotomy between discipline and freedom. Either you're going to be, um, you know, tight-assed and like a, like a soldier and not really have much fun in life, or else you're going to be really indulgent. Um, and there's no interplay between the two. It's like you have to make a choice about living fast and dying young or living slow and not having much fun. But the truth is that discipline creates freedom. Freedom sits on top of discipline. It's not opposed to it. For example, the discipline of the engineers who built your car makes it possible for the steering, for the steering wheel to actually turn the wheels 30 degrees when you turn the steering wheel 30 degrees. Because of that, and because the brakes work exactly as you expect them to, and the gas works exactly as you expect it to in a disciplined way, you have the freedom to roam about the countryside. Your radius of locomotion expands dramatically. Discipline created freedom. Um, a, a jazz pianist is able to improvise and express their soul because they've spent so many years practicing the scales, and they understand the structure of music. 
because they know where the structure is, they know how to improvise away from it and how to come back to it so that people still perceive there to be music and just not noise. So discipline creates freedom. And you'll find that when you adopt one rule and you feel like you've mastered it, that you have more freedom, not less. The second thing is that you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. Peter McWilliams said that. You can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. And we have to make some choices. Do, do you want to have a uh, lighter sense of physical being? Do you want to be free of digestive distress? Do you want to be free of cardiovascular and excessive health worries with all the diet reversible diseases out there? Or you know, do you want to have donuts every day? You, you can choose either one that you want to. You can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. So I think you combine those two things together and you get a very powerful, uh, powerful life philosophy that um, is really the philosophy I try to infuse and never binge again. The last thing I'd like to tell people is that we present the food rules to the pig as if they are set in stone. The same way that you might present to a two-year-old that they could never, ever, ever walk into the street without holding your hand because they're not mature enough to even entertain the image. I didn't want my little niece, Sarah, to dart into the street or even think about it when she was two without grabbing my hand first. But I knew when she got older that with wisdom and experience, the rule was going to change. It's the same thing with your food rule. You can change the food rule with, thought, with forethought and consideration and experience, but you don't let your pig change the rule. So you tell the pig that it's set in stone, and technically, technically you're lying to it, but why can't you lie to it? It's been lying to you for all these years, and it's not mature enough to know that, oh boy, we could change the rule if we want to. Why don't we just change it right now? Um, people procrastinate about getting started with this because they're afraid that they're not going to pick the right rule and then they're going to be stuck with it. But you don't have to worry about that. That's not how this works. You, you aim with perfection, but you forgive yourself with dignity if you made the wrong choice. Awesome. I love it. Well, my final question for you is what is your vision of what healthy looks like and what are three things you do daily to reach that vision? Um, okay, three things I do daily. Uh, for, for me personally, after lots and lots of years of passing as many chemicals and sugar and fat and starch and salt and oil through my, through my body, my, my vision of health is really eating very clean, mostly what nature has to offer. N not that I don't have any indulgences whatsoever, but I usually plan them out and bound them the way that we talked about. Um, so that, that's my vision for healthy eating. The way that I do that is I start the day by filling myself with healthy goodness, usually with a, some type of a green smoothie or some type of vegetable juice. Um, that's usually after I've done vinyasa yoga um, or, you know, I live on the beach, so I might go for a long walk on the beach or something like that. And then after breakfast, I do some journaling, journaling and I ask myself what the biggest win for the day would be. I, I've always got a long list of things that I'm never going to get to, um, but what's the biggest win? Well, if I only got one thing done today, what would be the biggest win? And you find that those wins add up over time and they keep me mentally healthy and um, productive and proud of myself. So yeah, that's, I think those are the answers. Yeah. One win um, in one day doesn't sound like much, but over the course of a year, that's 365 wins. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's a much bigger number. 
Well, people can find more about you at neverbingeagain.com, and you also have your book available. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button, you'll get three things. Um, you'll see the reader's bonus list. Sign up for the reader's bonus list. You will get a free copy of the book in PDF, Nook, or Kindle format. Um, the electronic formats are free. The you know paperback and the audible version are, are, are paid. Um, you will get a set of recorded coaching sessions for free. The reason I did that is that I, I know this sounds really weird. You must be thinking, why does Brian have a psychologist sign with a pig inside of him? It's, it sounds really harsh and cruel. And the truth is that in one session, you'll see I can take someone from feeling hopeless and powerless and confused and desperate about food to feeling powerful and optimistic and enthusiastic. And I wanted to see you to see that it really is a very compassionate program at work. And um, then you'll get a set of food plan starter templates, which are um, sets of example rules you might use depending upon your dietary philosophy. Because this is a diet agnostic program you can, as long as you're eating enough nutrition, you can succeed with just about any diet. So there are sets of rules you might adopt if you were doing keto versus, you know, whole foods, plant-based versus, you know, low carb, high carb, point counting, calorie counting, what, whatever you're doing, there's, um, there's a set of rules you can adopt for yourself. So neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button and you'll see what to do. And you'll get led to all of the other stuff from there. We, we have coaching programs. I've actually written seven books since um, since we published the first one. Um, but it all starts with Never Binge Again, and you'll get led to everything else from there if you're interested. Perfect, Glenn. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about um, how people can recover from binge eating. And I hope uh, there's quite a few people that will take you up on that offer. I think it's a great opportunity to for people to reach out to someone that you know, has been through it just like they're going through it and it can get them out the other side. So um, just like you, I'd rather see a healthier world and I hope people take advantage of this type of stuff. Me too. Me too. Thanks, Brian. It was fun. I loved having this conversation with Glenn and I think he has a lot of really good insights into different ways to break free of that food prison and stop binge eating and to have a better relationship with your food. So definitely check out what he's doing over at neverbingeagain.com and see the resources that he has available over there. Next week, I have Jim Hernser on the show. Let's go learn who he is and what we'll be talking about. Hey, Jim, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? Um, you know, I developed a, a nine-hour contact hours course for physicians, pharmacists, uh, and nurse practitioners that teaches them about integrative medicine. And, uh, and I love giving that course. It's, it's interesting that when I give that course, I'm refreshed. At the end of talking for nine hours, I'm refreshed. I'm so excited about the, the, all this information I share. And that was something I'm really proud that I developed. And what will we be learning about in our interview together? Um, I'm hoping to help people to appreciate the, the little-known benefits of customized compounded hormone therapy and other types of of compounded therapies. We have so many answers for issues and conditions that traditional medicine has no answers for. And so I'm just hoping to bring light to that. And what are your favorite foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? Um, I'm a big fan of free range proteins, clean proteins. Um, you know, if it's fish, uh, cold water, 
uh, wild caught fish, an example, or free range beef, you know, uh, grass fed. Uh, <clears throat> I'm also a fan of low glycemic index fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, not keeping the starches out of the picture because of insulin resistance and also um, going grain free because grains are inflammatory to almost everybody that eats them. And what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? Um, I'd say start with maintaining balanced bioidentical hormones and, and, and thyroid. And sometimes that just means optimizing them, you know, balanced and optimized. And also change your eating style uh, from the sad American diet <laughs> and exercise your brain because your brain is just as important as your body. I had a great time chatting with Jim, and I think compounding pharmacies need to become more of the gold standard for how we supply uh, patient protocols, because these are designed specifically for you. If you want to feel like you fit into a, a square box like everybody else, then by all means, you can go get the, the products that support that. But in reality, everyone is individual and everyone's bodies are unique. Therefore, your treatment protocols should be that way as well. So until next time, keep climbing to the peak of your health.